Hey, if it makes you guys feel better, I tried really doing a pirate thing. accent once for a D&D character I was playing, and I just couldn't. I could not do it. What did it sound like? I I don't know. It. I can't. I don't want to do it. You're gonna put it in the in the pre-roll. I yeah. want to know. Do you want to know what of my? <laughs> All right, here's my pirate accent. Our matey. <laughs> it was good. It was good. It's flawless. No notes. Oh my god. At all. It's fantastic. I should be an actress. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Jess Mastricola. Mike DiFilippo. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Uh, it's not something that we see in the field too often, but we were talking off air and uh, it's something that we're seeing in the emergency department kind of a lot, right, Mike? Yeah, I was saying, you know, I never appreciated how many patients actually suffer from alcohol use disorder and subsequently alcohol withdrawal until I became a doc. And, you know, it doesn't matter what their chief complaint is. It's going to be, you know, patients in the ER for eight hours. And all of a sudden the nurse is like, hey, I think they may be withdrawing from alcohol. They told me they you know, drink a bottle of wine a night or six beers a night. And it's like, oh my gosh, um, you know, it's surprising to me. So, you know, I think it's, it's a pathology we probably don't recognize so much in the field. Um, you know, we recognize it when it's bad, certainly, you know, um, but I, I, I'm not sure, you know, how sensitive we are, I should say, to picking up on subtle clues of alcohol withdrawal. And it's certainly not something that we spend a lot of time in class talking about, right? We, I think we kind of fall into the trap of being like, oh, the typical drunken town. Um, so Dan, do you think that we discuss this sufficiently? Do we give it enough attention? What what are we missing about this at the beginning? No, I don't think we give it enough attention uh, at all. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting that alcohol withdrawing from alcohol will literally kill you. Um, you know, you can withdraw from opioids, you'll feel horrible. Um, benzos pretty much the same thing, but an alcohol withdrawal, BTs or delirium tremens will actually kill a patient. And I think we ignore it a little bit too much. And I think we could probably do a lot better with it. And I I think we underplay it. I think we, some people acknowledge it, but they, they treat it like the person almost deserves it. Like that's what you kind of get. And I think that's also a dangerous rabbit hole to go down because it's not something that they're doing on purpose. (laughs) I I think that's certainly something that we, Yes. Yeah, me yeah, just a little bit. Little well, bit. it's something that we attach to kind of all substance use disorders, right? I think true. there's we, we kind of have the thought process like, oh, well, they did this to themselves, which we know that that's not true. We know the data supports that. But what do you think is the problem with the stigma, Jess? I think that part of it is um, a lot of people just think that anyone who's an alcoholic, well, you did it to yourself kind of thing and don't acknowledge the fact that it's an actual disease process and a very difficult one to recover from. Um, and that part of recovery for many people with substance abuse issues is that recovery means like you're going to sometimes relapse and that's a very natural part of the recovery process. So, and, and something that obviously has come into the medical literature over the past 10 years is, you know, the adding substance use and alcohol use disorder into the DSM. So it actually is classified as a mental disorder and not so much that, they were trying to classify it so that, you know, we, we were over stigmatizing mental disorders so much, but it was more added to it. So we kind of add it to this compendium of mental disorders to so be treated appropriately. And I think it adds important validity to substance use disorders. So like, no, it, it is 
existent in literature, it matters. These are real illnesses that we can treat. So it, it, just like any other substance use disorder, it's it's difficult to talk about the origins because some of them may be based on mental health. Some of them might be based on you know, societal factors, different things like that. But Mike, talk to us a little bit about the, the physiology and the pharmacokinetics of alcohol and why alcohol withdrawal causes such problems in these patients. Sure. So alcohol itself uh, is a drug. Um, you know, most things, most things you ingest actually can be classified like as a drug. A drug is just a fancy name for something with a chemical compound that causes a reaction in your body. Um, so alcohol itself works by depressing your central nervous system, very similarly uh, pharmacokinetically to benzodiazepines. So the way alcohol works in your body is by depressing your central nervous system by overactivating GABA receptors and decreasing your NMDA receptors. So those are words that just sort of flew over my head when I was a medic and flew over my head when I was in medical school. The way I like to characterize it is your GABA is your brakes to the car and your NMDA receptors are your gas pedal to the car. So and the easy way to remember that is, you know, most people take a drink or a few drinks to relax. And you can think about that as like hitting the brakes a little bit, slowing life down, relaxing a little bit, taking your foot off the pedal. So inversely, so when we talk about pathophysiology, so that's how alcohol works. Pathophysiology is what is it caused to go wrong. So over time for people with alcohol use disorder, the body gets used to decreased amounts of GABA receptors. So they actually downtrend the amount of GABA receptors that are available and uptrend the amount of NMDA receptors that are available. So the way to think about it is it makes the brake pedal very, very small in the absence of alcohol and makes the gas pedal huge in the absence of alcohol because the body has alcohol so often that it just gets used to having it in the body to sort of regulate the gas pedal and the brake pedal. So when you're no longer supplying a steady supply of alcohol to the body, what ends up happening is overdrive of the gas pedal and almost non-existence of the brake pedal. And to put that into actual medical terms now, you have a, a very large amount or over utilization of NMDA receptors and an under utilization of your GABA receptors leading to the symptoms of withdrawal. So how does acute withdrawal present then based off of this is imagine everything in the body is just turned on pedal to the metal, right? Heart rates elevated. They may be seizing because of overactivation of NMDA receptors, the, you know, very hard to break the body. So people will be like agitated, delirious. And the big thing we get concerned about obviously is delirium tremens. Um, and we'll get into that, but that's sort of the kind of general mental scheme I use to both explain the pharmacodynamics of the alcohol and then the pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal. And I just say that no one has ever explained it like that before. And that actually really helped me too. And I've obviously like have read about this before. So thank you. Um, I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Mike. You're welcome. It's because somehow my brain, which is a five-year-old brain, made it into a medical school. <laughs> so I break things down for myself like a five-year-old. Well, and, and Mike, you and I have talked about this off air before with both of our educational experiences where I, I feel like not so much in EMT school, but certainly in medic school, going through drug cards, and this may have been just representative of our program, but you know, going through the different sheets and be like, all right, well, it, it, it's a GABA inhibitor. That's all we need to know. Like there was a running joke in my medic class that beta blockers block the beta without actually like explaining <laughs> what the drug does. <laughs> actually, yeah, I can understand that. Right, like, Only oh, alpha blockers in this Zoom chat. Right? Like, <laughs> <all right>. alpha. <laughs> alpha receptors only, dog. 
So what, but when you have these patients, and, and again, Mike had touched on benzodiazepines, and certainly there's a lot in the literature about benzodiazepine overdose or benzodiazepine withdrawal and how to respond to it. But it is important to keep in mind that any substance that, or any drug that a patient is taking on a regular basis and they stop taking it, their body is going to have a physiologic response to it. So it, it's interesting to me that we're aware of this, right? Like we know what drug, uh, you know, we, we know what overdoses look like, but we also what drug withdrawal looks like. We know what generalized withdrawal from other things look like. If you take an SSRI and you stop taking them, you're going to have more problems. Like it seems to stand to reason. And we just never really applied that logic to alcohol withdrawal. So if, if now we have kind of an idea of how the drug works, um, talk to us a little bit about absorption and how long this stays in the body, Mike, and then we'll get into how we can actually fix these people. So alcohol is actually pretty rapidly absorbed and rapidly distributed. Um, and the more fat you have, the the faster it actually distributes, uh, believe it or not. Whoa, uh, really? So <laughs> people hit peak metabolism of alcohol within like 30 minutes or so. Uh, and it's metabolized in the liver, which, you know, is no shock, but this is a review episode of alcohol withdrawal. So that's why we're saying it, um, you know, and that's why commonly patients who have alcohol use disorder, not necessarily over a short time period, but over a very, very long time period, will develop hepatic cirrhosis or alcohol-induced liver cirrhosis, which is essentially just like replacement of the normal liver tissue with this sclerotic, hard, fibrous tissue. And it just, you know, makes it harder for the body to sort of um, uh, filter things out because your, your liver is one of your two main filters in your body in, in addition to the kidneys. Um, and your liver is really responsible for filtering out a bunch of toxins. So, you know, when you enter into the stage of liver failure from overuse of alcohol, um, you, you lose control of all those metabolites and all those, uh, enzymes that are present in the liver that break down alcohol. And instead you have collection of a lot of these dangerous enzymes that cause things like hepatic encephalopathy, for example. You know, you can fix that just by drinking lemon juice, water, and paprika. That removes and, toxins. And removes all the toxins. Gets them right yeah. out. I thought you were about to say something so serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, the real the real answer is Gwyneth Paltrow's goop. Yes, that's the solution. Uh, so now that we've talked about that, let's let's talk about when we see this person on scene, identifying some of the issues that might point out that this is not just a drunk. Um, you know, one of the things that always got me with it was, you know, you, you see these people, they seem, they can seem agitated, they can, they seem sweaty, they can be tachycardic, they're going to be hypertensive. You guys should see the patient waka waka. Yeah. <laughs> That's just Dan when he rolls up and <laughs> the new medic well, arrives. Well, no, the, the sweaty. The, I think the first I, I thing to consider is, you know, it, we, we talked a little bit about stereotyping earlier is, you know, there are people who have alcohol use disorder who are functioning addicts. There's plenty of functioning addicts that walk around this world. So I, we definitely have certain stereotypes when we think about people that experience alcohol use disorder, but, you know, I think that's kind of the first thing where like, you know, this, whatever stereotype you might have in your head, you know, whether it's, you know, it's in a trailer park or it's in low income housing or whatever stereotype that you might have in your head, you might have someone who, you know, is in the upper class, you know, white suburban household that's making seven figures that also happens to have alcohol use disorder. So, yeah. you know, and, and again, the same thing applies to drug addiction and overdoses too. So the first thing is when you're walking into a house, not keeping on, not holding on to those preconceived notions that you might have about the place that you're going into. And, you know, cause you can walk into whatever environment you're into. And I think we tend to think of, 
you know, I don't want to say clean environment. So I think that's probably the best term to use where, you know, if you walk in, you're like, oh, this patient's probably unconscious because they're a diabetic, right? There's no, there's mm -hmm. no other reason why this would happen. Yeah. And I, th I think we kind of keep alcohol use disorder kind of in the back of our head during those times. I think you're absolutely right. Cause I've, I've definitely been guilty of not recognizing it as fast as I would have liked to in some patients for sure. I've definitely been guilty of, um, especially obviously early in my career, writing these patients off as like, it's a, you know, I could smell the alcohol in their breath. They're just drunk and turns out they're in, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis. <laughs> so let, let's talk about that for a minute. What, what do you think we do as a culture or, or I guess as a society to try and either increase our education to people with alcohol use disorder or to kind of reduce that stigma starting at the classroom? Or is that something that, I, that is going to be better done in the field? No, um, I think it starts in the about. classroom. It absolutely starts in the classroom. Because if you start that at the beginning of someone's career where they're learning how to become an EMT or a paramedic, then now you're just laying that foundation to build on top of in the future. Like it, it has to start in the classroom, in my opinion. A hot take. It should start before. I mean, well, obviously, it should start it should, before it should start you societal, ever societal, on a societal basis. Right. But, but I think but, everybody knows somebody who's been affected by a substance abuse disorder. Well, and that's an interesting point too, right? Is if we're going to start this at the beginning of the educational process, how do we, and this is more of a rhetorical question, we don't necessarily have to answer it today, but how do we get to that point where we can find students who might be predisposed to those type of things and explain to them the physiology behind it? Like this is an actual physical ailment that the patient is experiencing. It's not, you know, at any time that you have someone who is just a drunk, the odds are that their presentation is more than being just a drunk, Right. Like that, there's all these, there's hundreds of apocryphal stories of people who are like, oh, I thought he was a drunk, but he was actually in DKA or he was a bleed or all this other stuff, you know, and that's not, that's not even to mention, because we're talking about withdrawal, the other things that go along with alcohol use disorder, like they're prone to bleeds and things like that. So uh, do we, do we start that just by trying to explain the reality in the classroom or do we, I, I'm not, I, I, and I know I'm asking kind of a, a broad hypothetical, but it, we have to start somewhere. So where do we start that, Mike? You know, I, I think it's, it's a little bit mix of both. I, I think, I, I think you're, you're going to train your students to recognize the science and, and everything else behind these disorders. And, and hopefully they recognize it as such. You know, I, I think this may be a little jaded of me, but I don't think people who have such personal uh, distrust of science or distrust of data are going to necessarily believe it as true. You know, you see this in addiction medicine all the time, whether or not you're talking about alcohol, uh, opioids or food or whatever else have you, sex addiction, you know, gambling addiction, there's tons of it that's immediately blown off. So, you know, I think those specific set of people are going to be very difficult to reach. But for the average person, I think education is going to be a lot. And then just, you know, experience, like, you know, like Kevin said, I've been humbled so many times by people I've blown off that now I can tell you like some of the most detailed exams I do are on the quote, just a drunk patient that comes in who's like obliterated and can't talk to you because I can also tell you how many times I've seen them have giant subarachnoid hemorrhages or, you know, significant lab abnormalities that, that or one was a new cancer diagnosis that just ended up being obtunded from a tumor. Um, you know, Absolutely. so there's, there's there's tons of things that can cause you to be altered and certainly alcohol being on board doesn't make it any less likely to have other things. There's this famous uh, dictum in medicine called Hickam's dictum, uh, which states- Best name, best name for a thing. 
<laughs> a patient can have as many problems as they damn well, well please. So your patient who is shot in the head can also be in DKA. Your quote unquote, just a drunk can also be in DKA or have a brain tumor or be seizing or have a brain bleed or whatever else you imagine. So, you know, I know we're focusing on actually intoxicated patients. And the point of this talk was withdrawal patients, but I think it's important to recognize them both on a spectrum because carrying, you know, in medicine, we, we do a lot of learning about patients who what's called carry a chart diagnosis. So patients will carry a chart diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, polysubstance use disorders, various mental health disorders. And as soon as a, a provider sees that, they immediately blow off a lot of patient complaints. You know, for example, how many times, and we've all been guilty of this, using fibromyalgia as an example, a patient with fibromyalgia calls 911, you roll your eyes, you're like, oh my gosh, it's just fibromyalgia. You know, again, you see a lot of patients, you work in the field long enough, you get humbled by this stuff. Like yeah. fibromyalgia patients, whether or not you believe the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia, will still get sick. Patients with alcohol use disorder will still get sick. Majority yes. of patients with alcohol use disorder are going to withdraw. That's a or they die. example. Yeah, yep. like there's, there's yeah. no, you know, patients are still going to get sick, regardless of what maladies they carry. So, you know, I think to answer your original question, how do we approach this in the classroom? I think straight teaching, present the facts. It's up to that learner whether or not they want to accept the facts. And then a lifetime of work where you get humbled by your mistakes and you recognize your own shortcomings. Yeah, let's um let's take a minute to just talk about generalized alcohol statistics here. There's an estimated 15 million people in the U.S. who struggle with alcohol use disorder, and less than 10% of them receive treatment. Um, and then 40% of Americans also report binge drinking over the weekends. And some people might consider binge drinking as a form of alcoholism. And in because- fact, we celebrate it. It's, well, yeah, it's encouraged. Culturally, it is. It's it part is of like frat culture in college, you know? Right. So there's a high, so. high probability you are going to encounter somebody with alcohol use disorder. And when you're also encountering them for a different call altogether. So you've got to keep it in the back of your mind for a whole, you know, cavalcade of different calls you could go on from seizures to strokes to unresponsives to traumas. You could have somebody who has a traumatic injury who's also intoxicated. And I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up, Kevin, because I was going to say, and I think it segues really well into alcohol withdrawal in and of itself. Why do people with alcohol use disorder go into alcohol withdrawal? And a majority in my experience, you know, obviously there's that subset that want to stop using alcohol and they'll call 911 or present to the emergency department to help facilitate withdrawal. Or in, in my experience, a majority of patients unintentionally withdraw. Yes. So you have patients yes. who are sick and they're vomiting and they can't keep their alcohol down. So they end up coming to the hospital or they're activating 911 for nausea, vomiting, but then, which is their true problem, right? They may have a gastroenteritis or whatever it is, but then their actual real life threatening medical problem becomes the withdrawal. Yeah. I, I can't I think tell that's you how many we, patients pre hospital providers really need to recognize that, that as a, as a, portion of the exam for some of these patients. Absolutely. Like I can't tell you how many patients I've had in the ER that's that have come in for pancreatitis and they end up withdrawing because they've been vomiting for days and they have pancreatitis or like a, just either just a simple like GI bug. Um, so that's, that's a great example. What do you got Danny? Another, another great example is, uh, the, the incarcerated, you know, somebody who's been in County jail for two or three days, and now their mm. altered mental status and everybody walks in and, you know, there's that, you know, oh, this is nothing. This is BS. And you find out that there are some really sick people. Oh, goodness. Uh, um, yeah. How many times? I mean, anybody who's worked in a coverage area that holds a jail, how many seizure calls have you had at the jail? And you're like, 
it's just quote unquote incarceritis. Like you're still going to jail, pal. Like, no, that guy's been in lockup for 24 to 48 hours and now he's withdrawing. Like, this is a, like, you got to keep that. You can't let it slip out of the back of your mind on every adult call where a seizure is involved. Like it has to be something that you, whether you think about, ask, look for evidence of, or just keep it in your mind as a possible um, pertinent negative or pertinent positive, depending on your findings. And this is yeah, all ignoring the, the other pathologies that could be tied with it with like you know, esophageal varices and different portal hypertension syndromes and, and all that other stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's something that I don't think we, obviously we don't think about enough in the field. And I, I like the point of the unintentional withdrawal, because you might have someone who, again, is like, you know what, I'm just not going to drink for two days, you know, whether it's for whatever reason, they're going away or whatever. And it might just be something that's kind of beyond their control. And Mike, I also like the, uh, the Hickam's dictum reference because it's Hickam's dictum is a direct response to Occam's razor. And I think in this particular setting, we do tend to apply Occam's razor a lot where it's someone who tends to drink, thus their problem is probably tied to drinking. Um, but I, I do like the response to that be like, yeah, or it could be whatever the hell they want it to be. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these symptoms we might see with withdrawal. Um, aside from just like your gentle, your uh, gentle, your general altered mental status, gentle. your gentle mental status. mental status. Oh God, I love gentle altered mental gentle status. Gentle mental status is my favorite mental status. So Mike, take us through some of these phases here that we've got with these withdrawal symptoms and what we might see and how we can change our treatment depending on the phase. Sure. So first thing I always like to stress about teaching alcohol withdrawal is it's a clinical diagnosis. And what do I mean when I say it's a clinical diagnosis? There's no test that will tell you yes or no, someone's definitively in withdrawal as opposed to like a beta HCG, which will tell you definitively yes or no, someone is pregnant, right? So a clinical diagnosis is I, the, the clinician, look at the patient and take into consideration the constellation of what I'm seeing in front of me and say, hey, this fits a clinical diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal. So there is a general timeline of when patients will start experiencing symptoms. So Jess brought up a good question offline, and it was, you know, how long does someone need to be using alcohol to go into withdrawal? And that's a very difficult question to answer because sometimes it could be a large bolus of alcohol. Uh, again, you know, using an analogy to medication, a large bolus of alcohol, let's say from a heavy binge drinking weekend, which, you know, some of us, most of us, I'd probably say have been there in college, college days. And you, you're drinking. That would never happen amongst this crew, Mike. We are all chaste and pure. You're, you're drinking like a maniac for, you know, two, three days, right? Big party weekend. And then like the next day you wake up, you're feeling like shit. You get out of bed, you're like really shaky and wobbly. And you're like, oh, maybe I just need a greasy meal or something to get back on my feet. Like that, that's out. <laughs> the, Fuck yeah. That's pork out. and cheese. <laughs> I, just, I just got lost in a moment. I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but that, <laughs> that's, and that's, cheese and a hash brown. That's, that's alcohol withdrawal, right? So that's, that's a perfect example of alcohol withdrawal. Fine tremors, a little bit of sweatiness, not feeling well. You're withdrawing from alcohol because your body had a huge dose of it. We could just now, talk about what I just did right there. I just, again, we were talking about glorifying binge drinking. I just had like a happy memory of being like hungover and hungry. Like, that's I mean, it's, not it's good. A very, there's, there's a reason it's so prevalent, not even just in U.S. culture. It's, it's prevalent all across the world because alcohol is just a very social thing. And I mean, it's, it's because your 20s are there to make memories and we're here for a good time, not a long time. It doesn't necessarily make it bad. It's just something that's culturally associated with good, good times, right? Um, so anyway, to get back into like the time frame of when you would see withdrawal. So the, the real clinical question, when I, when I'm approaching a patient that I'm concerned that is an alcohol withdrawal is, is this person, I ask myself two questions, are they in delirium tremens and are they going to seize? 
Because those things to me are indicators of severe withdrawal clinically. And those indicators are to me that this is a person who has a very high mortality rate. There's some literature out there that if a patient is seizing from alcohol withdrawal or in delirium tremens, and we'll get to what delirium tremens is, or in delirium tremens, that their mortality is upwards of 50% without medical treatment. That means you look at one person who's having a seizure from alcohol withdrawal, one in two people are gonna die if they don't get treatment for it. This is a really serious disease. And the part that makes it extra serious is it's something that's super prevalent in our culture, alcohol use. So it's not like some random stranger is going to get diagnosed with it and it's a rare disease. It's not. Well, so, and not even not even alcohol use is that is that prevalent. It is. But I mean, delirium tremens is so well known that there's actually a beer called delirium tremens. And it's a what? delicious IPA. It's one and of it's the a, IPAs. <laughs> no, you're lying. No one actually likes IPAs. Mike. I hate IPAs. Yeah. See, <clears throat> I like hey. margaritas, dude. Delicious. There's a classy girl from the Jersey Shore. <laughs> so what? A, so let's talk about what we would see on a pa- uh, on a patient in alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. So and, when, alcohol- and what are some of the red flags that we need to really lock on and say, hey, this is a problem. I really have to do something about it. So, so the biggest thing you can do to kind of give yourself a timeline. So you'll you'll see in a lot of the literature, or if any of our listeners look at our show notes or you know read up on this after listening. You'll see a lot of references use a time frame for withdrawal. Now, withdrawal is really a spectrum. You can have very mild to severe withdrawal, and you you don't necessarily have to fit the textbook. You can have some symptoms that are not present, but most patients will fall into the general textbook appreciated time frame of withdrawal symptoms. So, who goes into withdrawal? Common things being common, it's people with a long-standing history of alcohol use disorder. Years and years and years and years of chronic, consistent drinking, and it doesn't have to be crazy. You're six beers a night person, you're one bottle a night person. Those are people who are going to go into withdrawal if they miss a day of it because they've been doing it for five, six, 10, 40 years, some of these people. So for that general population, it's going to be a majority of your alcohol withdrawal patients. Within the first day, you're going to have what's called minor withdrawal symptoms. So these are symptoms that are not very specific and it's why it's missed a lot. Anxiety, headache, nausea, vomiting, generalized unwell feeling, the sleep disturbance, not, not being able to sleep. And why do you get these things? Remember, you have complete removal of the break and all you have is the gas. People are going to be anxious. They're not going to be able to sleep. They're going to be nauseous. It's overstimulation of your sympathetic system. You're not, you're not going to feel that, right? Because your body's on 100 miles an hour. And this is the beginning of it. So it gets worse before it gets worse. That's what I always like to say. So what's the next thing that happens? The next thing is around like day one to three. So what we were just talking about now is within day one. So hour zero to six, 24. Most people who are at, who are everyday serious drinkers will start feeling withdrawal symptoms roughly within about six hours. And it's those minor symptoms, anxiety, headache, not feeling well, because their body's starting to miss the break, right? It's starting to come onto the gas pedal a little harder. Days one to three is when shit starts going crazy, right? Cars going 150 miles an hour. Imagine you're stuck in this car, right? All of us have been stuck in a car with a friend who doesn't have any appreciation for their life and is driving 120 miles an hour. Mike, you mean like, driving with you, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're like, holy shit, did I just see that? Did I hear that? Whatever, right? You, you, you know, things are blurring by you. You're not able to make sense of the environment that you're driving through. So, what Wait, does that mean? You're going to have hallucinations, visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, tactile hallucinations are huge. I'm going to say a phrase right now, and all of you are going to go like, oh, yeah, I've heard a patient say that before. Oh, Doc, I got bugs crawling all over my skin. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. See, I then I'm like, dead bugs, no. Like, that's a very common <laughs> tactile hallucination for people in alcohol withdrawal. Why, I don't know, but that's a very common thing. 
Now, is it probably is it because of the upregulation of the nervous system? You think it's just making things happen that that aren't there? Probably. I mean, my best guess would be it's probably due to some element of upregulation of your mom. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> I know no one Whoa. was expecting that one. No what one a 90s joke. Nobody expects <laughs> Michael to. <laughs> Woo. That hurt. Sorry. Well, no, I mean, it, so, so the best part is like you're like Mike said, right? You're taking off the brake. So it would stand to reason that you would be hyper stimulated, especially to, you know, your skins, you get erection and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So to get this educational podcast back on track, gentlemen, and Jess. <laughs> um, so Dan, I can be a gentleman. Okay. Fine. Uh, so mild withdrawal again, right? Anxiety, headache, nausea, vomiting, sleep disturbance. Then you start really getting into this hallucination. And mind you, not all patients have to have all these symptoms. There are people who have very minor withdrawal. They don't have any hallucinations. And then they go right into delirium tremens or something else crazy. These are just generally accepted uh, signs and symptoms of withdrawal. So when do I say, oh shit, this is someone I need to be worried about. And I'll tell you exactly when EMS brings somebody in and they go, hey doc, I have this guy here. He's a drinker. Uh, he was found seizing on the sidewalk and most people go, ah, he's probably drunk or whatever, sleeping it off. You know, no, that's a huge red flag to me because seizures to me indicates severe withdrawal. You're in such autonomic overload. Your sympathetic system is pedal through the floorboard, touching the road. Your car is going a zillion miles an hour. You're, you start having a seizure. Like that is, that is a huge red flag for me. And that if you go to any ER doc and you say, Hey, I have this drunk guy here who started seizing. Most of them will stop what they're doing and they're going to go see the patient immediately. Well, and it, it feels like it would be fair to to kind of add the caveat of just anyone with any alcohol intake history is is probably someone who's withdrawing until proven otherwise. In certain yeah. in certain There's scenarios, actually, um, it's, it's I don't know also if Mike. I don't know if your ER does this, but I know a lot of the ERs that in the system I work for have like a screening tool they have to fill out in regards to alcohol consumption. Yeah, we use the pause or the the pre- use pause. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Ed, you said something that I wanted to touch on. What did you just say? Uh, just that people that might have, you know, the occasional drink might be subject to being in withdrawal. withdrawal and withdrawal otherwise. Otherwise. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a very important thing to consider, especially with things like seizures. And then the other thing, Danny, which, which, uh, you asked me earlier, what, what are some harbingers or things I look for to consider severe withdrawal? It's not just the seizures. It's that really, really agitated patient. The patient who's dripping sweat, screaming. You have a bunch of cops trying to hold them down. Maybe they called you out to sedate them to get them safely to the hospital or jail or whatever, right? These are these patients that are commonly classified as your excited delirium, whatever have you. They're diaphoretic. They're tachycardic. They're all jacked up. They're screaming their heads off. That's delirium tremens. That's delirium tremens. And DTs, right? Delirium meaning an altered sensorium, an altered perception of reality, not acting appropriately. We're all familiar with the, with the grandma who's having delirium from the nursing home, who's like telling you about a flower and like picking at things in the air. Like that's 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 what we you know routinely know as elderly delirium or delirium of the elderly. There's hypoactive delirium, which we sometimes see that old person you pick up who's just like sleepy and not moving, and that's like you know their change from baseline. This is another form of delirium, delirium tremens, tremens for the seizure activity that you sometimes see, although that's a separate entity. But if you see a patient like this, that's the most severe part of alcohol withdrawal. I think it's not the the seizures. It's not the not feeling well. It's this patient who's diaphoretic. Really, the key term that you want to remember is autonomic instability. 
Really, yes, I, that, really that will come in very handy when I say that to uh, the nurse doing the triage. Um, so, Mike, I just I don't want I don't mean to interrupt you, but so you went into delirium and everybody. I feel like when we're taught in medic school and particularly EMT school, when you think of DTs or delirium tremens, like you're only thinking of like them when they're having like the tremors and they're shaking. They always leave out the part about altered mental status because if they're sweaty and altered, they're just like they're still drunk or right. they're don't, losing don't it or they're on yeah. something else. Don't forget yeah. the delirium part of delirium tremens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Keep keep I've, you know. I've let's had put, EM... let's put the laughter in slaughter. You know. I've had e... <laughs> I've had EMTs come up to me and like you know seeing that same person described and they're like ah oh, but he's just a drunk don't worry about him like no i'm gonna come in and take a look at this guy danny you and i have gone through this more like four times than i care of like oh yeah no he's like kind of shaky he's a drunk i'm like okay okay we're coming in we're not taking yeah. a cancel we're coming in nope, nope. so let's, let's start to wrap this up with some of the treatments so obviously if you have these patients and they're in these situations they can't maintain their airway it's something that you're going to intubate whether through facilitated intubation or using an rsi or whatever you use um, you know, if they're seizing, we know we're going to give a benzo, something like lorazepam, midazolam. Um, I'm always going to stand for ketamine on this show. Um, that is the that's a special drug that we all we all stand and we all love. Um, but it might go through some of the uh, the treatments here because I, I know thiamine is usually on the list, and I know there's some debate as to its effectiveness. But generally speaking, are we more worried about the long term effects in the field, or are we just worried about concerning the seizures? I would say erase everything you 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 think about. And the top three treatments you need to forget everything you knew about alcohol withdrawal. The top three treatments you need to remember are benzos, benzos, and benzos. Yes. These, these folks can chew through benzodiazepines like you would not believe. Again, their body has been so accustomed over time to have no break because the alcohol has replaced the break. You're not going to knock these people out. I have given people, I'm not even exaggerating, clips at a time. So my preferred benzodiazepine is Valium or diazepam. Uh, to give it as a very fast onset and it's off within 30 minutes. So you can really monitor how they respond to it. Um, so I use a lot of Valium. So for example, I've given people 60, 100 of Valium at a, at a time. Yep. Nurses are pulling up multiple vials of medication. And these folks I'm giving 100 of Valium to are sitting there like, hey, doc, I'm still shaky. I'm not feeling too well. Can I yeah. have a turkey sandwich? And they're not lying. And like, <laughs> oh, no. And it's like, we all know those town town drunks that have alcohol levels at a baseline of like 500. That would normally yep. make someone unresponsive. I so mean, a typical CWA protocol, which is what all the hospitals I've ever worked in use, like a typical one, like to treat like a moderate like withdrawal is like you're sometimes giving like 10 milligrams of Ativan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was going to give like an equivalent because I think most pre-hospital providers carry like Versed, Ativan as opposed to Valium. Um, but, you know, I've given like 30 of, of Versed in a clip to someone, 30 milligrams in one dose. I was just going to say for, you know, if, if you're an EMT or, you know, realizing this, you know, we're going to need to, we might need to use more than what's normal. Um, we may have we may have to pull over and get more. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, reasonable. It's not out of it's not out of the realm to use an enormous amount of drugs on these people. And for these patients, and, and again, Danny's talking to the EMTs in the audience, there's a lot of things that are starting to happen in pre-hospital medicine that involve the medic unit pulling over to the side of the road to initiate treatment, whether it's resuscitation or essential procedures we have to do. So you might start seeing medics pulling over to the side of the road a little bit more and more. And if, in this kind of case, if you have a patient who they're just burning through all the benzos we're giving them, we are probably going to have to pull over to get more narcotics if there's more in the truck. So as far as the, the rest of the treatment's concerned, so benzos is really the mainstay. 
you know, let's say your patient's like in severe withdrawal or status seizures, then that would be, you know, intubate obviously for airway protection. Propofol is what we use in the hospital. Um, you know, certainly you can use ketamine as an NMDA receptor antagonist, which is good to get the foot off the, off the gas. Yay, ketamine. It doesn't help. You know, part of it is to like, not to get too into the weeds of it, but it's not fully just an oversaturation of NMDA receptors. You could take the gas off the pedal, but you still have no brake. So you need to give something to give the brake to just removing the positive reinforcement of the NMDA is not going to solve the problem. So that's why the mainstay of treatments, benzodiazepine. Um, you can use, you know, adjuncts, ketamine, certainly another great one. Um, Danny, to your question, as far as long-term things, you know, thiamine, certainly, uh, you know, there's, you know, classically used to give these patients banana bags. Most hospitals don't use that anymore since there was no proven benefit to them, but you make a pseudo banana bag for these patients, liter of LR, some folate uh, in the IV and you're good to go. So um, there, there, there's a lot that we can do to recognize and and treat alcohol withdrawal syndrome out in the field. So we hope that this was helpful and educational. We want to know if you guys have heard anything about alcohol withdrawal syndrome in the field. In the meantime, please follow us everywhere that you find us on socials. We're on TikTok now where I record videos in front of a TV stand my stepbrother hates. Uh, and we go over different uh, data points pretty much uh, four or five times a week. So uh, let us know what you guys think. Uh, give us a subscribe and all that kind of stuff. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Chester. I'm Kevin Mazza. And if you <laughs> and anybody you know is suffering from alcohol um, abuse disorder, please get in contact with your local hotline in New Jersey. You can dial 1-844-276-2777. It's an addictions access center if you need help. I'm Anika Montoya. No, I'm Jess. <laughs> I'm Jess Mastercola. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next time. <laughs>